UAP, welcome to episode number 12 of Let's Talk Synth Seriously. In this podcast, you'll get detailed interviews with your favorite artists and other interesting people from the synthesizer driven music scene. And if you're into genres like synthwave, retrowave, synth pop, or related styles, this shows the right show for you. We're not talking much about 80s, 90s pop culture. We're talking gear, studio equipment, advices for producers from the artists themselves, and also about developments in the scene. So if you're a synth music producer or you're a dedicated fan of the featured artist, you don't want to miss this for sure. My guest today is a British Yorkshire tea lover, and so you can expect an episode with some style. He's been a professional mix and mastering engineer with his own commercially used studio building for several decades. He's produced internationally acclaimed pop and rock musicians, and as we will learn in this episode, he once met the mother of the brothers known as Right Said Fred. I promise you one of the most interesting and entertaining episodes ever on Let's Talk Synth Seriously. And without further ado, we'll start with some music from the man whom I have the pleasure to welcome today. You will have guessed it already, it's Tim Benson, better known as Isle Knight.
So that was Hot Copper Sun, which is, I confess it, my ultimate favorite track by IL-9. And he's my guest on the episode. The interview was planned for a long time, but unfortunately I had to cope with several issues recently, like that a house was converted into a construction site due to bathroom renovation for more than a month. Can you believe it? So we had to postpone this interview several times because I'm sure you want to hear Tim talking and not a drilling machine, right? But finally, on an evening in February 24, we met online and so here's the interview with Tim. So, I'm very glad to speak with Tim from Isle 9 now. Tim, you are in Somerset, is that correct? Yes, that's right, yeah, in Watchit in Somerset, a little little coastal town in West Somerset, that's right. Well, that sounds amazing. So, what did you? Uh, what led you to the place where you are now? Did you always live there? Uh, no, I, I was born in London, um, and uh, in North London, and then moved when I was six to um, Surrey, Hampshire Way, which is just just south of London, really. And um, I probably lived around that area sort of most of my life, really. Um, uh, and it was during the pandemic that we actually moved, but around 2016, uh, I believe, we made a big change in our life. We decided to sell my sort of studio my um building that i've been running as a recording studio and uh, buy a holiday cottage down here in in somerset and um then to run that as a business and to move down here so um yeah it was uh, we didn't move down until sort of um about three years ago now but like uh yeah it was it, it was quite random i i do sometimes catch myself looking around and thinking how did i end up here it wasn't kind of all that well planned it was just like one of those things where we we <laughs> followed our in you know followed our nose and saw where it led uh, where it took us really so you know um it's it's a very different part of the world really it's it's a lot more remote and quiet and coastal and beautiful um which is a plus and then there are some minuses but you know mm. you do you do miss like some of city life and like you know access to london things aren't as easy so you know there are some things you miss but like yeah it's a it's a beautiful place to be yeah that sounds wonderful and when i hear that you once had a building that you used as a recording studio professionally of course we need to hear that story first yeah. so yeah. how did you start what was your journey in audio production and uh, Uh, to where you are now, basically. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, it started, I mean, I guess this music started for me at school, as it often does with people, but not not really because I was being taught music. I didn't really get on with uh, traditional music lessons or anything very well. I picked up the guitar probably early teens, 12, 13, something like that. And um, I think it was actually, I was very bored one summer or something. And my My sister had a guitar. She used to sort of strum chords in church or something like that. And um, uh, I, I don't know, she wasn't very good at it, but like, um, you know, she soon enjoyed it. And I, mm. I think I just picked up her guitar one day and decided, oh, well, this can't be that hard to learn, you know. And <laughs> I thought I'll teach myself. Um, and, you know, I, lo and behold, I did start to teach myself, got some chords out of a book and stuff. And It wasn't long before I was probably better than her and uh, much to her dismay. And it, it didn't take long, you know, that seemed to come quite naturally and I was just picking things up by ear, which I didn't know I could do really, but it just seemed to be something that I had. Then I 
picked up the piano as well. I kind of started translating what I knew on the guitar and putting it onto the piano and everything else. And eventually I, I sort of, you know, got together with some other people, started jamming and that kind of thing, um, but forming bands, that sort of thing. And I did have a little bit of guitar lessons there from a really good guitar player for about six months, um, which was fantastic grounding. I think I soaked up a lot of stuff in that time and took it away. And then I kind of kept doing music, really. I couldn't, you know, once you've got the bug, I think. So I kept playing guitar and other things. And then a couple of friends were really interested in electronics and electronic music and, uh, well, in building stuff, really. They were both mm-hmm. went on to do electrical engineering. That was interesting. I wasn't really coming from the same angle as them. I was very, oh, guitar is everything, and, you know, I don't like synthesizers. And they were very into building things. And so we did some interesting little projects, uh, which um, I think had a much more profound effect on me than I realised, because, like, there were some things like turning my ZX Spectrum into a sampler, which um, meant that they actually managed to blow all of the e, uh, the EEPROM, I think, in the um, <laughs> thing and have to buy some more, It was, which was really expensive in those days. So yeah, it was like, yeah. you know, we did some bad things, but at the same time we made a tremendously bad sampler that only had about, you know, a few milliseconds of sample or something. But like, <laughs> you know, but like... Um, but it was exploratory and it was it was good. I was learning about different things, playing with effects units, all sorts of things at that point. And I was still just sort of at school, really, at the, the end of my school time, really. And then um, I started busking, which was another thing that made a big impression on me. So I was on the streets busking for a bit of extra money. And I suddenly realised that people would actually pay me money to play songs they knew, which seemed quite enticing. So I used to do that all the way through university. I studied at university doing fine art, and uh, I was just, you know, when I wasn't studying, I was like um, going busking to earn a bit of money and doing gigs and things. The real studio thing started to happen just towards the end of university because a friend had a four-track Tascam Porter studio, he wasn't really using it very much, and I just sort of borrowed it off him. He was my uh, one of my housemates, and so he was good enough to lend it to me. And um, I just started working out how this thing worked and, you know, how you could layer different tracks together and then bounce things from one track to another and all the rest of it. I, you know, worked out various things with that, and uh, and I actually recorded my first and and today only album on that um uh bizarrely enough um uh, of myself and um yeah i just loved it i just really got the bug yeah i mean it, it was a dream for everybody back then you, yeah I, I still remember these tascams uh, standing there in store and everybody was standing before it and imagining the, how how things would be different when you had something like that at yeah. home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it seemed like a world of opportunity at that point. And, uh, and then um, in the middle of that, one of those friends who was really into electronics at Finnish University and was working at the BBC doing um, electronic engineering. And I used to sort of meet up with him in London and he had the beginnings of a studio, really, his own studio. He had always enjoyed this electronic music making and he started to buy hardware, um, bits and pieces, samplers, synths and stuff. 
And so we started to make music together. It wasn't very successful. We didn't have a lot of success at that point, but we were learning and I was learning tons from him. Um, and he was learning a lot on the job at work as well. So I think I got a really good education in some things through him. So that was great. And then the next stage was I started buying my own equipment and eventually I moved all of the equipment that I got together into, which had been in my bedroom. I, I, I bought a house um, with my uh, wife at the time. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we got our first house. And, um, uh, and I put in the cellar, I just said, right, this is going to be a studio. So it was quite a small cellar and converted that, had a Fostex R8 eight-track machine and a... Behringer mixing desk and various bits of outboard and uh, synths as well, JV1080 and things like that in there. Mm -hmm. And I just started really trying to make music with that. I, I thought I was going to write mainly, but then people kept coming along and saying, oh, you know, will you record me? Uh, so, um, you know, it just turned into a way <laughs> of earning money. Um, and, uh, you know, I got you know, asked constantly by people, will you record me and will you make a, you know, I even got bands in, which was ridiculous. I had no room and I sort of had a little electronic drum kit or pads at one end of the mm -hmm. studio. And so people would come and play on that and we'd do sort of, you know, attempts at like, like sort of live drummers and that sort of thing. So it was, it, it, but it was all very compact. And so you're all in one room and falling over each other. I think my wife at the time was finding it difficult, like when a punk band were in her living room and things, you know, <laughs> and I was mending a Fostex R8 that various bits of it had flown apart, like during the <laughs> recording, and I was mending it on the dining room table. So it was getting a bit hectic. And at this point, I thought I've got to look for somewhere else, really, somewhere that's going to be my own place. And that was really how Opus came about, which is the name I gave that studio. I found a, a building, sort of, it was quite ideal, really, because it was near a pub, behind a Chinese takeaway um, and a kebab shop, in the middle of a beautiful <laughs> village, like lovely, quiet, rural village in Surrey, but with easy access um, from London and stuff off the A3, which is a main road out of London. So um, it was really quiet but really easy to access. Nobody overlooked it, nobody bothered us, and it, we weren't going to cause any problem of noise, really, because it was a sort of um, detached building. But mm -hmm. um, then I sort of set about going and soundproofing and building a studio, because it had been uh, just like a, a, an industrial unit. and been. It was an old coach house originally where they shooed the horses, so it was all brick-built on two storeys, 500 square mm. feet, and they sort of separated it up. So it was a lovely character building, but like it had been various people had taken it over to run their businesses in. I think the last person had been a curry sauce manufacturer. And then I came in and I was like, right, I want to make this into a studio. And I had no idea how to really do this. Um, so I got an acoustics engineer um, consultant who was willing to... Um, sort of let me consult with him but do the building myself with some friends and 
I told him my budget, and I think after he's finished laughing, um, <laughs> <laughs> which was, I was said, oh, I've got £5,000 and I want to change this. And he was like, I don't know what you think you're doing. But like, yeah. he was he was brilliant because it went far more than £5,000. But he was mm-hmm. really, really good um, at helping me to sort of realise as good a studio as I could without just you know, telling me to spend thousands and thousands. He really, really helped me, you know, find good materials to build things out of, build traps, build, you know, uh, acoustic treatment and all that kind of thing. And, yeah, but that was the beginnings of it, really. So that was in about 2000. And, uh, you know, it continued for 16 years after that, really. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so the and- birth of Opus. Yeah, great. I mean, what a story. Fantastic. I mean, this is, uh, I mean, you lived the dream. (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, I suppose I did. I I think the dream may not be quite as dreamlike as everyone thinks when you're actually in it, but you know. Like every dream. Yeah, Mm, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, were there any, um, let's say, celebrity musicians or celebrity bands that you worked with during those years, or maybe bands which became celebrities after that? I was thinking about this when I re- read your question, um, mm-hmm. and this is a really strange one because I got to meet various celebrities along the way, um, all kinds of people sort of over those years of doing stuff, but an awful lot of what the bands that I was working with were bands that no one would have ever heard of. And unfortunately, most of them, mm-hmm. I don't think, ever had that big a success. I mean, it it was, uh, you know, they were a lot of them were local bands um, and some of them were really, really good. And some of them got on the cusp of deals and, you know, or had small deals and things. But most of them, you know, it, it didn't, they grew up and got, married or they decided uh, you know they didn't want or one one band got right on the edge of signing a really big deal i think it was sony or something like that through they had all these people sniffing around they were very sort of like coldplay-esque sort of band they really mm-hmm. could have been the next coldplay with an absolutely phenomenal singer and writer then i remember he walked into the studio that day after they'd had the meeting and said i've left to me and i went what just on the edge of signing a great deal and he was like yeah i just decided i couldn't spend the next five years with those guys so i've just decided i'll go it solo and i was like oh no (laughs) so a lot of that happened where you felt like you might be near something and then you know it it didn't happen but i i did well (laughs) this is a very random fact but like um not someone i would have ever thought that i'd end up working with but um I did three albums with a, a he's a he was a glam rock star really from the 70s um but he actually continued to have hits in the 80s the 90s and I think 2000 certainly certainly right up to then which was um Alvin Stardust now he might oh, yeah sure yeah you remember that name yeah he's not I definitely heard the name yeah, yeah I don't think I heard the music but I heard the name <laughs> That's probably not a bad thing. Um, uh, but yeah, he's, you <laughs> know, he was, he's a really, I mean, he had a, a number one with uh, a song called, uh, I think it was My Kukachu. Uh, he had a, a um, it could be Red Dress. He, he had a couple of, well, I think he might have had about eight tracks in total that went into the top 10 at one point or another. 
he, he's not a name that everyone knows, really. Yeah, he sort of came up from that kind of sort of glam rock kind of thing, Bowie and uh, Gary Glitter and all those kind of people, yeah. mm-hmm. I guess. That kind of glam rock kind of sort of thing and Roxy Music. Um, but he, he was sort of... Um, yeah, it was very rock and roll, really, was what he did. And um, it was, it was, he was a lovely guy and phenomenal. One of those old-school musicians who literally, you know, he'd get the band in, we'd split them all into different places and start recording. And he hardly ever did more than two takes of a vocal. And I knew <laughs> I had to get the first one because he'd probably just go like, yeah, that's good, that's it. And I was like, what? You're not going to redo any of that, Alvin? No, 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 I'm happy. But, you know, we used to regularly get stopped by particularly the older generation, like, you know, uh, who probably knew him. You know, we go go off for breakfast or we go for lunch or something and, uh, you know, and people come up and go, oh, can we have your autograph and everything? But I think most people... <laughs> Certainly people of my generation and, and generations after me just wouldn't have particularly known him. So, um, But I do remember watching him on the telly like when I was growing up, so it was, it was very bizarre. But I have various other people, like I ended up doing some live sound one day for Cliff Richard and, you know, oh, wow. I, yeah, some, some of these sort of, you know, they're quite blast from the past, but like they weren't particularly the music that I was into or, or that I was listening to, but... Um, I had a very strange day when Wright said Fred, who wrote the terrible <laughs> song, I'm Too Sexy for My... What is it? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Terrible song. Anyway, yeah. They wrote that one. They just turned up at the studio, uninvited. They just appeared and um, were looking it out and checking it out. And I had a metal band who were recording an album and they were very full on all over the place, like, you know beer and pizza and they were really in the <laughs> in the zone and right said fred that he um turned up with their mum um who was very elderly and just <laughs> had a look around the studio and asked me a few questions and then i think decided this wasn't for them and and i made her a cup I of see. tea and that was about it really so <laughs> but you know i had lots of these various brushes with with people, you know, um, we did some gigs as well because I played, I, I, I had a band that we performed for about 18 years doing functions and weddings and things. So we were very professional in that way. Um, and we did sort of, it was a sort of cover band circuit, but it was really the sort of top end of it. And, um, and we used to get billed sometimes as a support act for various people and things. So even some of the original bands I played in, you know, we'd sometimes get on a bill with supporting someone else, you know. But So it it was good. I sort of had brushes with all of that, but I can't really say that, you know, I found Coldplay or the Foo Fighters or anyone who I might have liked yeah. to or Radiohead or someone, you know. It didn't happen, but, you know, maybe it could have. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, but in 2016, you closed your studio. Was it not paying out anymore or was it a personal decision or you wanted to try something else or what happened? Yeah, that is a good point. Um, I think I'd had some health problems uh, around a few years before that, really. I was finding it difficult. The hours of studios are kind of quite mad, really, and we'd be there um, for... Sometimes I found I'd done 70 hours in a week sort of thing. It was getting mm -hmm. very excessive. And I don't think it was doing my health a lot of good, that kind of lifestyle. I think as well that I was seeing a change in the number of bands who were perhaps coming in to just track drums and then go away and record the other parts at home or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. it, it was changing. The studio business was changing. I mean, I don't think it was dying, but it was changing and I I think I just sort of thought to myself maybe it would be good to concentrate on the mixing and the mastering and to work from a home studio again and just to sort of cut back and that's what I've done really so it's been you know a change and also I think I wanted to experiment with with less uh, less pressure on me to record everyone else's things and produce everyone else's things and a bit more time to actually um, write and record and release my own stuff as well, which, um, you know, I, th I think you think when you're going to own a studio, you'll do that. And in reality, you hardly ever get the time. You're, yeah. you're in demand. <laughs> so that's the way it goes. So you've been in music production for such a long time. And, mm. you know, um, I, I, I think you told me that you have extensive production projects that involved a lot of hardware and also Cubase mm. yeah. um, uh, connecting with hardware stuff and, you yeah. know, really complicated things. And today it's possible to just spend like $500 or so or 500 pounds and have a really cool home studio at yeah, home. Totally. Um, so you've seen both of these um, developments. So is there anything you miss about the good old days or do you say, oh, it's good the, the way that we have it now and you can just get any compressor that you want for $50 as a plugin? <laughs> yeah, that is a really good question. I was thinking about this. I, I think I miss like one project I did myself where I was producing um, a band um, and we, through some contacts, we ended up, in Genesis's studio for the weekend, um, mm -hmm. the farm where they, you know, Phil Collins and all the rest of it uh, recorded. And I was in there with these guys uh, and I was producing. Um, so I was behind the desk and everything else, which was a bit confusing because it was an unbelievably complicated SSL, which I'd never <laughs> used before. But like, but I mean, it is hard to explain unless you're in those spaces with all that analog equipment, with that you know, gear in front of you, there's something about the vibe of the spaces themselves, often the history of like all the, you know, the things that have gone on, the records that have been made in there. There's something about being with with people all in, you know, that collaborative situation, a studio situation, not writing everything in the box and being sent files and, you know, that kind of thing. So I think a lot of it is the people and the place rather than necessarily 
how you're tracking or recording the band. But I think, you know, I mean, it's things like lovely microphones. Again, it's very easy now to sort of find that you you don't need many microphones. You have one microphone and you kind of use it to do most things with, you know, unless you're mm-hmm. recording drums. So it, it's nice to have all of that stuff around. And I mean, as for the sound of like, you know, using an LA-2A and using the real thing or using a plug-in, I think plugins have got so good that they offer fantastic opportunities for us all like to make sound in a way that we just couldn't have afforded most of us like so yeah. mm-hmm. outside of those really expensive studios I think a lot of us have benefited hugely from the DAWs um that we have um and the access to it at a much sort of lower price point but I think there's something about the experience and the... I mean, it's like I miss my mixing desk. I don't need my mixing desk, mm-hmm. and I'm delighted that I don't have to use it because I can recall every project. And it was a nightmare trying to recall stuff on a, a desk where you just have to write down how you'd set things up. But like, um, yeah. <laughs> but I loved... I had a ghost, a Soundcraft ghost um, desk in the studio there, and I just became... It's like something you become at one with you just work on it every single day and you know every single bit of it and you spray the deoxy and the fader that doesn't work mm-hmm. and you it's just like <laughs> this sort of thing that you become in love with not because it's sonically that great sometimes but like you know um it's probably sonically better to use my UAD Apollo but like um you know I I did love that kind of um yeah it's it's hard to explain, really, unless you've set, spent hours and hours doing it. The love you end up for all these things, and I think there's a, I think there's a speed which you can work when you get to know them really quickly, which in a way isn't the same with the DAW. I think there's something yeah. about like, particularly with bands, if you've got a whole band up there, there's nothing quicker than just having an analog desk where you plug them all in, you track them all this that and the other i could make a monitor mix and get it into you know and i'd suddenly be recording a band really quickly because i'd done it a thousand times before um with that gear the other thing is when things go wrong with digital stuff it's an absolute nightmare sometimes finding out what's going on whereas often with analog stuff you just chuck out that lead plug it into another channel, you know. I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's so, yeah. Anyway, that's a convoluted answer, but, you know, hope it makes some sense. Yeah, absolutely. I can totally relate to it. Maybe not in regard to mixing desks, but, mm. for example, my first synthesizer that, that I had, which was an Ansonic SQ-1. I got it in 1990, and I knew it inside out because it was my only synthesizer for a few years, and it was my holy grail, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, finally, I had a synthesizer synthesizer and so i i really tried to learn everything about it and so i can absolutely relate to that feeling and i think one of the problems with modern day daws and vsts is that we just have too much of everything definitely and we have like 20 compressors <laughs> and uh, i don't know all kinds of emulations and so on where we should just have like one or two that are really good and that are really fitting for the music yeah. that we do and learn them inside out right definitely oh 100% do you know i i am as guilty of that as everyone else i find myself sort of going oh just shopping for a new plugin and i sort of sure. buy a new plugin and then i go 
why did I buy a new plugin? I've got all these other plugins that I haven't even really got round to learning properly how they work, you know, or, mm -hmm. or exploring all the sonic possibilities. And in fact, I sort of just today, I just writing something, um, and I don't know if it will turn into something I release or not, but like, um, and I just actually set myself a bizarre task to just use one synth and nothing else to write with. And I just mm -hmm. wrote everything on Synth Master 2 today, a synth that I don't really know that well that I bought, and it's not very expensive. And I, I just discovered that essentially I can make an entire piece of music using that, and it was sounding really good. Um, so you might ask why I need all these other synths and all these other plugins and all these, you know, I mean, even your humble soft synth now often has like compression and reverb and delay and all these things yeah. built in. Um, so, yeah, it's it's incredible what you can do within any one of these um, sort of synthesizers now or, you know, um, romplers or whatever it is. And it's so easy to just think, I need more gear, I need more plugins, I need more this, that and the other when, mm -hmm. and, you know, I mean, it's, it's incredible, as you say. In a studio, even like some of the finest records we'd listen to, I mean, they wouldn't have had more than one or two um, outboard compressors or EQs, they, you know, they just wouldn't have afforded them. And often they were tracking to sort of four or eight tracks or something in the early days, and they still made great records. So, yes, it's very easy to feel like we need all of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I also think that the limitations that were there in uh, the past, yeah, they sometimes added to the character of the recording. Definitely. Because, you know, uh, with uh, synthesizers, I am almost always fascinated by the gear that cannot do everything, you know, yeah. that, that, that has limitations, but because it had limitations, the engineers of the device really had to think around these limitations yeah. and still make it a great sounding instrument. And I think it's the limitations of the technical gear that gets out the character of an instrument or the character of, uh, of a compressor or whatever. Yeah, whatever. yeah. Definitely. I mean, there are compressors and things that I remember having to use, like the Behringer Composer and the um, Alasis Compressor and things like that. And I'm really glad I don't have to use them because they were shit. Yeah. <laughs> they were awful. They were just never sounding good. No matter what you did with them, they never really sounded that good. And now I can just load up a soft synth that does sound like, you know, I mean, something as simple as an LA-2A, which I use so much and you don't need to be a Einstein to use it you just need mm -hmm. two controls and oh right a bit more compression a bit less compression there we go lovely um it, it, so I yeah I think some of those things that are very very simple but just have great character to them which is why they became so popular in in big studios are now um available or very close to the originals are available in software form and I, I think that's fantastic to have mm -hmm. but but yes i agree we we have option paralysis and we don't get the most out of them we're not creative enough with them sometimes yeah that's true so you're also a fellow cubase user which I is am. getting rare these days and uh, i wanted to ask you about your relation to cubase and why you never changed you know so many mm. people have changed to ableton or logic or whatever mm. and um when i say 
I'm a curious user. Sometimes I'm being looked at if I was a grandpa, you know? Yeah. So I just wanted to ask you, what's the thing that, um, yeah, stuck you to Cubase? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, a lot of it's familiarity. I started on a Atari ST using Cubase. Um, uh, me as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had a I had a rookie copy on a on a floppy disk that mm. someone gave me. I don't think I could afford the real thing. I was using it and I was like, you know, spent most of its time crashing. Um, and then I, um, having said that, once you got the ST up and running, it was pretty solid once you were in there. But like, um, but then um, then I sort of bought my first copy and that was on PC. And again, it was awful. It was so unreliable. Not mm. really Cubase so much as the PC was pretty unreliable for audio when I initially <laughs> got it. So that's so different now, so different. Um, but I guess, yeah, because you get to know that program and you just, you know, you've used it for so long, you just know it inside out. But I think things that I, I really like about Cubase is I think, you know, it has a tremendous flexibility in its architecture of like, think of it in a very engineering way. So I used to be able to track whole bands into Cubase, like multi-tracks all simultaneously without a problem. Even when something like Pro Tools, like used to, when you used to finish a mix in Pro Tools, you'd have to sit there and wait while it exported it in real time. Whereas Cubase, had already decided that there was a way of exporting this in like, mm. you know, way quicker. And I think VSTs and obviously VST architecture came from Cubase. And I mean, I think the the sort of accessibility that I wouldn't have had in Pro Tools, which was my other thing really to have maybe used um, at the time, it was Pro Tools or Cubase, I think, in, for me, because Pro Tools was the big thing that studios were using. Um, and I think a lot of people wonder why, as a recording studio, I wasn't running Pro Tools. But I hated Pro Tools. I hated DigiDesign. I hated like <laughs> their, how much they charge for absolutely everything. And I could see this whole sort of hardware side of them that you had to buy into wasn't going to last very long. And surely, uh, lo and behold, it didn't last very long. And everything became native. And now Pro Tools accepts all kinds of different hardware and stuff. So you could have spent a fortune in that area to get the kind of system that I was able to run with. I had a UAD um, plugins uh, on running on um, UAD mm. processing cards, um, and I could have this all on my PC. The PC was cheaper to build than buying a Mac. Um, so I think it was economy as well, like what I could build, the kind of system I could build um, at, at that time. Now, of course, I think we are at the point where pretty much you can have any door with any, you know, a, a MacBook or a, a decent PC. And, you know, I think it's much more a case of which do you get on with better? Do you like Logic? Do you like Ableton? Do you like Cubase? Um, they are all doing the same thing in different ways. I mean, I love things like the drum editor in Cubase, which is still not something I find exists to the same degree in 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 some other programs i like that um mm -hmm. i like the way that works i i think the the actual soft synths and stuff the 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 synths that come with cubase are, are very very good i think the plugins yep. mm -hmm. are very very good i think a little while ago a few years ago the plugins weren't as good as they could have been but they are now very good yeah it's just i i i think the um i mean i think the way it deals with 
Audio allows you to edit audio really easily. I think the audio editing is fantastic on Cubase. I think, um, you know, all the Vary audio is fantastic if you've not used Vary audio. If you, yep. you, you still sort of, people who go, oh, I need Melodyne and I need this. And I'm like, I don't need any of that. I just like go straight into Melodyne and I can, uh, you know, I can tune up a vocal or change something or a note on something just instantly. Pitch shifting and changing things is very, very intuitive. There's still some things I don't like, but, you know, <laughs> um, I've still never really got the MIDI mapping thing. I just find every controller oh, yeah. and MIDI mapping is just a lit nightmare. And they come out with new systems for it all the time, and I still find <laughs> that they seldom work as well as I'd like them to. But... um I think I've got into just like mapping anything I want in audio with like uh, in in controller information with a mouse most of the time. But like, um, but I mean, to be honest, there's great, you know, automation is great in it as well. But I know, I know lots of other people will say it, it works the same in other things. I, I, I still can't get Ableton's timeline thing. It confuses me mm. with the different kind of the way it works in a more loop based way i can see that that really works for electronic music i think ableton is a very good choice for some people and i think logic's fantastic for the money cuz you're up and running with a great thing or if you've got a mac it's a pretty obvious thing to buy but you know but uh, logic wasn't that good way back i found i didn't find it very logical or very easy to use <laughs> at all back in the day when I was recording. So so I, I feel it probably seems maybe odd now, but back when I was setting up a studio, there was a lot of things that made sense about using Cubase. I think the only other option for me would have probably been to go in the Pro Tools route, and that was going to be prohibitively expensive if I wanted to build the same quality of a system. Nowadays, probably easier to... You know. Yeah, I mean, there are so many other, other doors as well, yeah. like uh, FL Studio yeah. or Presono Studio One. And for mm. example, my friend Katie Tisch, she uses Presono Studio yeah. One. It's, yeah. It looks really good and nobody really uses it. No. And there are many options these days. And um, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think everybody's got to pick the door with which she or he can work yeah. really well. Yeah. Yeah, and I, that's the most important thing, right? It is absolutely. Yeah, I wish there was an easier way of just trans transferring files, you know, between them. We could just translate songs easily between them and just share project folders, yep. but, which that's doesn't right. still really <laughs> exist. But I guess it's not really in their interest to make it exist. So, yeah. um, which which is a great shame because I think that um, you know, I think. But I work all the time with people who will just send me, it doesn't matter what they're working, they send stems to me and I open up yeah. my project and I send stems to them. So not really an issue. But um, yeah, we just do a lot of stem creation, which is easy in Cubase because, of course, you can export all the stems directly because it's clever like that. I do often find that. People say, oh, I spent ages doing this, and I went, oh, I just... Yeah, but you still have to be very good organized when you um, um, yeah. uh, when you write the, the, the names for the yes. tracks and so on. And I really tend to be not organized so well uh, yeah. <laughs> within uh, my project. Or organization so. <laughs> is hugely important with... Yeah, that's with, right. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I was explaining that to someone the other day that, like, my channel one on my mix is from right back in 
you know, whenever I started doing this and started, you know, really becoming professional at it, it's like channel one will be the kick drum, channel two will be the snare. And it's just like, <laughs> I literally kind of followed the same pattern in my head. And so that helps. It's like my project from 10 years ago will be the same in that way. <laughs> and it's that organized in a way, which is funny because I'm not the most organized person in many other aspects of life. Mm. But, you know, but with that, I just got into a, a kind of, you know, this is the way it works. And I'd, I'd be quite upset if like, you know, the overheads weren't on three and four in a drum mix, you know, or something. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I don't think in terms of uh, channels, but I think in terms of color codes, Right, you know, and I have color codes for drums. I have color codes for strings, for guitar, yeah. and so on. So yeah. I I find my way in my projects through colors. Through colors, yeah. Well, I I use the colors as well now, yeah, and put things in folders and stuff. Yeah, I mean it it, it all helps, doesn't it? It it does. Yeah. Like um, uh, yeah, they've they've made it a lot user more user friendly as they've gone on with those kind of things and keep it organized. But the more projects you have, the more organized you have to get. So.
So before we speak about your own project, Al9, I mm. wanted to uh, dive back into uh, one topic that you uh, mentioned very early in this interview, and this was that you built stuff on your own with your friends, like you built your own gear. So recently I have come to, uh, across an article on the internet um, which uh, had the topic of these uh, magazines that mm. were there. Yep. Where you got like you you had subscribed to a magazine in which every with every issue you got a a piece of equipment that you could uh, sold together yeah. and then at the end there was a compressor or a synthesizer yeah. or, or stuff like that. Did you use uh, magazines like that? Well, my my friends did. My friends were really into using them. Yeah, and which is, explains their route into electronic engineering. I wasn't. I, 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 or at least, well, no, I did some basic bits and pieces like that. They were much more technical in those directions than me. But I was the guinea pig musician who kind of, they would kind of build something and then I would be the one who had to try and make some music out of it, really. But like, um, yeah, so, I, I, but they were really, yeah, everyone loved, they loved doing that. My friends were always like, you know, getting a magazine and doing that sort of um these kind of home builds or whatever. But, I mean, my friend actually built, a, I remember he built a microphone, no, not a microphone, a headphone preamp. And it, and he was just raving about this headphone preamp to me. He said, like, this mm -hmm. this sounds absolutely incredible. Put your headphones in it and you will really... And it did sound really kind of good in comparison with the cheap sort of headphone outputs probably that we had on most consumer gear at the time. But there was a big flaw to it, and it was in mono. And I just ah, sort of said to okay. him, I said, you do realise it's only in mono, isn't it? He went like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the stereo is <laughs> a whole other stage. But like, I was like, <laughs> but it sounds so there, didn't he? And he was, it, of course, his pleasure was in taking the circuit and building it and making it. The very fact that, you know, only one speaker was working or something didn't really seem to bother him. But like... Yeah, it was good that I had them around me building stuff. I think it was, it, it was, um, I never really turned into the expert, like, you know, I could solder a few leads together. Um, mm. Yeah, I had to do a lot of that. But, like, <laughs> but I mean, it was cool, right? I mean, the, you always did know somebody who was able to solder a, a few cables or so. Yeah. And that stuff seems to have died out a bit yeah. in in recent uh, young generation yeah because when i think back there were people building their own speakers or they were yep. um they were messing around with their car audio or whatever yeah and um yeah seems not to be the the thing of the day anymore oh yes yeah, so i was always doing that even if like you know i wasn't building the components i was always putting speakers together i was always you know, yeah, car audio, anything like that. I'm, I, a lot of messing around with stuff in that way. And I agree with you. Yeah, a lot of that's died out. I think as well, like, there's a lot of, like, sort of, actually, I mean, Mark um, Matthews and I mm -hmm. will say the same about this, really. those The kind of real sort of nitty-gritty of, like, sound engineering 
a lot of that kind of has got lost. Like people won't understand what a balanced cable is. They won't understand like, you know, what an auxiliary send is or, you know, there, mm. there's various sort of terminology and things that get lost because we're working in a different way. And sometimes those those things like signal-to-noise ratio, whatever, these, these kind of engineering basics that you learn are actually still very useful for getting the best sound and the best results. And, you know, the thing that's going wrong in your project might be because you've got the wrong lead or might be because you you don't understand the impedance problems you're causing by plugging that into this or whatever. So mm-hmm. there are times where actually knowing that stuff does come in in invaluable. All right. So we talked quite a long time about um, production and your <laughs> uh, your past and so on. But let's talk about your presence and yeah. your, let's talk about your present time with Isle 9. So when yeah. did you start Isle 9? What was the thought behind it? What's the kind of music that you do with mm. it? And yeah, just uh, and f- of, <laughs> of course, I have to ask you about the name, because <laughs> I think for a year or so, I pronounced it to- totally wrong. I always thought it was Ale 9. Right, Ale like nine. the beer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then my my friend Katie told me, no, 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 you have you have to pronounce it Isle Nine, and so yeah. I thought, okay, well, so what's it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's always difficult, isn't it, coming up with a name for something? But um, mm-hmm. the I think there were two sort of things really that uh, were kind of going round in my head, like with that one is the the phrase clean up on aisle nine seems to be like a phrase that is almost like a, an urban phrase for like someone who's taken too many intoxicating substances and is um, passed out on whatever. And it's this, it's, I don't know why it became that, but clean up on aisle nine was sort of like rescue, rescuing this person. I, I don't know. It kind of, there's a sort of, you know, that kind of dance music reference there, I suppose, like the clean up on aisle nine. Um, but like, It also turned out to be a, a, a Isle Nine is bizarrely a, a it's, it's a level on a game which I didn't ever realise um, until I'd mm-hmm. after, after I called that a, some big game some shootout game, um, but I also like the kind of idea of it as like almost like aisles in supermarkets and things like that the liminal sort of spaces in places and like um, I, I just like I don't know it's like. Maybe it goes back to Brian Eno and music for supermarkets or something like that. But there's something <laughs> about like there was something that appealed to me about like like um, you know the fact that it was like you'd find me in R9. So I don't know. Okay, it's okay. a strange <laughs> name to have come up with. But uh, yeah, it didn't have later on doing synthwave. I think I looked back and I thought I should really be like you know. I've chosen a name that was like really reminiscent of the 80s, but like that's not really where it came from. I think R9 is more so like clean up on R9 more refers to sort of almost 90s dance culture, I think. So, yeah, <laughs> that's the way it goes. Mm. And so what are your um, musical uh, ideas behind R9? What are you doing for music for people who maybe don't know your project yet? It is quite influenced by both the 80s and the 90s in terms of, you know, its sound. It's got a sort of retro influence. I would say that it employs quite a lot of modern production ideas too, though. It doesn't particularly just try aim to sound retro. But, mm. um, but you know, I mean, I think Love of Synthesizers, guitars in there as well, um, and things and some of the sound choices like Echo, those decades... 
and there's quite a bit of nostalgia as well, perhaps in in in, in some of my my music and 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 some of the sort of topics that the music touches on. They perhaps like reminiscent of those eras, and I probably have reminiscence for those eras myself. I think that it, it straddles synth wave, synth pop, and, and and then maybe some more sort of dance and rock music as well, like even some sort of, you know, I mean, people have said there's influences from Pink Floyd and Jean-Michel Jarre, and like then people have said like there's stuff like Depeche Mode and, and things like that. So there are different, you know, influences. I mean, New Order and Joy Division, I used to be huge fans of when I was growing up, so they're probably in there somewhere. So there's there's different things, but like, I mean, 90s dance culture was a big influence on me. I was really into the trance thing, but I think at the same time, I wanted to have something that was more of a crossover, that, which I really found in Synthwave, that you could have kind of guitars, you could have instrumental-based stuff and songs as well. And I think I tend to do that. I will have song-based stuff, I will have instrumental-based stuff, and... You know, um, it, it's quite a quite a mixture. I, I don't know. Maybe other people are best to comment on what it is and what it's not than me. So you know. <laughs> and you also do a lot of collaboration projects with yeah. artists. Like I, I just to call uh, to recall some of the artists with whom you collaborated. There were Talrex, Just Scott, um, Driver eighty six, Bunny X, uh, Future Analog, Rogue FX, etc., etc. Yeah. So yeah. what do you like about collaborating in music? Actually, Rogue FX said this on an interview today, and I think he's he's hmm? he's hmm? he's right. Like um, that through collaborating, something that wouldn't have turned up turns up. Like you know, it just wouldn't have been like that. It wouldn't have happened if you hadn't collaborated. So it would have been different or it would have not happened at all. So I like that. It can be inspiring. It can make you do something different, um, give you different sounds to work with that you might not have chosen different. I, I think that, you know, interacting with different people from around the world is lovely and interacting with their kind of interests and musical knowledge and, Their, their ideas is good. So I, it's really, I enjoy the whole thing around it from that point of view. Sometimes, um, you know, you're happier with the results than other times. Of course, it's not. Mm -hmm. and, and some collaborations feel easier than other ones. Um, uh, they, they're sort of, not everything is going to always gel. But like, yeah, I, in general, I just, I, I think it's been a very interesting way to sort of, um, you know, expand as well i think you expand uh, your audience through doing that as well i think that's definitely a plus for collaborating you know uh, that's an interesting point because i wanted to ask you also about that part of collaborating um would you say it's always beneficial in regard in regard to streaming figures or expanding your audience because personally i think it's so so there mm. are collaborations which Uh, somehow go through the roof <laughs> yeah. and then other collaborations uh, I also experienced some which um, let's say performed not so strong as my material that I do on my own Yeah, and uh, sometimes I also get feedback from fans who say ah yeah okay great that you had like four collaborations in a row but now we would really like to hear a true uap track again yeah because you know i'm i'm releasing my music as uap so that's yeah yeah i 
I do actually really understand that. And I think it's something I didn't until more recently. I've started to realise that, well, for instance, and this is Spotify, really. It's not the collaborations, but, like, um, Spotify just sort of puts to the top, like, whatever your most recent best-performing projects are, but, like, in the last mm-hmm. 28 days or something, which is annoying because then other music of yours just that is perhaps, you know, more your signature sound and and uh, overall got more streams. Like, for instance, my, fir- my first release, Miami Nights, um, you know, which I would say is fairly signature Isle 9, um, mm-hmm. and it was doing well, <laughs> like, in streams has now just disappeared out of Spotify, really. You have to go digging through my discography to find it. Um, because other things I've done, and in fact, two collaborations, one with Clintone and Sleepless Nights, and then another one um, with Rogue Effects, have done well recently and have just eclipsed all of that and are at the top of my <laughs> thing. Yeah. And various other things have fallen off. So... It's not that I mind that, but I, I suppose that, you know, I love those projects. They're both great. But, like, I suppose if you don't know Isle 9, you come and you hear two projects, neither of which I actually wrote the music to. I was part of the project, um, mm-hmm. remixed them or um, mixing or whatever. But it's, yeah, so I suppose it, I can see that, that although it's really good because a lot of people, you know, who, for instance, like Clinton and like, Sleepless Nights have maybe switched on and listened to some Isle 9 stuff, that some of um, some of these sort of your actual own music is getting lost in the, in the kind of algorithmic side if you're doing lots of collaborations. Um, and o- often when people come to your thing, they may hear a slightly confusing view of what you are because it's not just, as you say, just UAP, just Isle 9, my own, you know best of my own mm-hmm. tracks and i think my own tracks do have yeah that signature thing which is is different when i collaborate i i, I you know it's bound not to be the same um so yeah it, it has its downsides i can see that too you know <laughs> and what i also really like is that not only your audio content and music has uh, let's say a corporate identity or a special sound or a mm. sound that is really unique to your own but also the visual language is really striking. Your um, Isle 9 triangle logo, for yeah. example. Yeah. Uh, this is really, really cool. I mean, who does the graphics for you? Do, do you do it yourself yeah. or who, who did the, the development for you? I, I, it's, it's a bit of a combo. I do it myself, but my wife also... Um, I come from an art background. I, I studied fine art at mm. university, painting and uh, drawing, and, and I was really into modern art and creating various types of visual art so it's yeah I mean I from the word go the visual side of it was really important to me and I think I love the visual side of music and you know um, in general it's uh, I sort of see the two as going together but my wife also did graphic design and she's very very good with that side of things and she's an artist herself she's a printmaker so um, and my daughter's an artist as well. So, like, between all three of them, uh, you know, three of us, um, mm. you know, there's a lot of um, people talking about the way things look. So it's great because I've got help on hand. So actually, Lisa, my wife, helped, you know, I think I had the main the figure and the design of the Isle 9 logo, 
um, in this sort of pyramid shape. But then she came out yeah. with this sort of slight, oh, how about this with the triangles? And I was like, ah. Oh. And, you know, suddenly <laughs> this thing comes up. So, you know, um, so I think it's collaboration like, between the two of us for some of those things. But, you know, most of the R9 visual things are, are mine. Definitely important. And I think I think you asked whether you think it is an important thing for artists to have this today. Um, yeah, right. And I... I I do think it's important whether, like, it's, it doesn't obviously have to be done in that way, in a sort of more obvious graphics way. It can be the way you do your photos or whatever. But, like, you know, I think we we do identify with, um, you know, you've got, to, you've got to somehow carve out that that is you, that is your signature sound and music. And, and I think your visual side expresses that and connects to people and they see a visual, they're almost hearing the music before they've heard it. So, you know, the two have got to marry up and make sense together um, and, you know, be memorable. I think your music's got to be memorable, but I think your visuals have got to be memorable too. Yeah, I would also, I would absolutely agree. And for me, it was like for a long time, I said when I should ever release music, I would do it like, you know, Iron Maiden or Dio. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who had really recognizable cover artwork. Mm, mm. Like they had a mascot, yeah, like yeah. Dio had this devil, you know, and uh, Iron Maiden, they had this monster called Eddie. Yeah. And so um, it was really recognizable. I would, I've, at, when I began with UAP, I had this astronaut on every cover and then I felt like it limited me. And so right. then I changed that and now I don't have the astronaut on every cover anymore. It is a recurring figure that is sometimes on, on some covers uh, when I think, it, it fits into the topic, you know? Yeah. But um, I don't, I found it l limiting myself. And so, yeah, yeah that, I'm, I'm a bit uh, confused about that. <laughs> that, is, that. Yeah, I think that's the thing though, isn't it? It's like, because if you look at a lot of big artists, someone like The Midnight or someone takes someone really big, like they, you know, they do have a re recognizable visual sort of um, brand, but like, they do change it and it does change quite mm -hmm. a bit from one cover to another and whatever but like they do something to kind of connect and it might just be the the writing of the logo or it might just be you know the color or you know uh, their spotify backdrop or whatever it's it's funny how they let you know it's still them and there's enough of a kind of key, but like, you're right, they don't stop it from allowing them to sort of do something different for each, you know, uh, album or whatever. So, um, yeah, I think it mustn't become limiting, must it? You've got to, you've got to develop mm. something so that you can have freedom to just... And sometimes you have to throw all of that out and just do something radically different because that's what the album deserves or whatever you know um but i mean like yeah someone like pink floyd and their their prism you know that that was probably it wasn't on every album but that you know the the dark side of the moon i mean that's sort of you know a very recognizable thing and as a pink floyd logo so it's weird they didn't put that on everything but somehow it became something that everyone recognizes as pink floyd so yeah yeah um yeah so i think I, I might do the same. It's like on Eternal Overdrive, I've got like um, the cover of that. I've got like, uh, you know, the, the the pyramid thing is reappearing on that, but I don't put my R9 logo on the front of it. But 
it's kind of a similar visual language that relates to things getting used again. So it shapes and things that are kind of reminiscent of things that I'm using. So Yeah, I'm definitely liking things like that. Yeah. <laughs> so you've just mentioned the midnight and when we're talking about today's music scene mm. and the midnight is definitely a part of it. Are you glad to be in an age where you just can do what you want musically or would you rather like to be 20 again and start all new and try to get a foot in the door to actual pop stardom mm. these days? Um having millions of streams and earning nothing from it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure that the millions of streams thing doesn't earn nothing. It's funny. I think it's a bit of a fiction that I know that like yeah. we're in this <laughs> we're in this thing where like, sadly a million streams doesn't earn you very much money, not to say that I've even had a million streams, but um but yeah, I know that you know when I look at these people at the top of it and they they they're talking hundreds of millions of thousands of millions you know um it's mm -hmm. it, it's crazy like and uh, i think i think it's been phenomenal actually for older artists i think people forget this but you could be an artist who your back catalogue would have been entirely forgotten because people have bought it on an album and they weren't about to rebuy it and now they're streaming it and you're getting all this back catalogue money because they're streaming your entire back catalogue and you're you look at these bands from ages ago and they've got tons of streams that they would have never got they've got uh, you know people have already bought the cassettes and the cds and the albums and now mm. they're streaming them all over again great for them so you know if you were a pop star from back in the 70s or the 80s uh, i think you're probably rather loving the um streaming era because it's just revitalized your entire catalog for one thing or another and you're getting money that you would have probably never got so um streaming's a funny thing like that i i mean in answer to your question i think i sometimes look at it and go would i have done things differently would i have liked to try and really push for that for you know music to be successful with my own music or with a group rather than end up doing the engineering side and the production side um And I, I think, you know, if I had my time again, yes, I probably would have. I think I went off to art school and I probably should have, um, in a sense, followed my heart, which was music at the time, and just gone into a studio and all the rest of it and just followed up that line. And I think I sort of missed out maybe by doing that but um, and ended up in a different place. But um, it is difficult these days. Like, you know, the door is open to everyone, which is fantastic, but the competition is is, is crazy. But yeah, if I was 20, I'd probably I'd probably have a go at the um old pop stardom. I don't I think I think in many ways you're much better to be the bass player of Coldplay, you know, you're better to be <laughs> the person <laughs> right. that nobody recognizes, nobody knows about, but you you're you're still out there playing to millions and millions, getting fantastic royalties and you know having the the wonder of your music going out to the world which is mm. what it's really exciting to me it's not the stardom or the anything like that i've never been interested in that or material things it's it must be the just the thing of writing such great music and producing such great music and having you know have such a profound effect on people and become part of their lives um but He can do that without having to worry about being mobbed when he, you know, walks down the street or goes for a pint. So, 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> in my mind, that would be the best of both worlds in many ways. Is 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 to be the person who who has all of that, but you, yeah, the actual stardom and fame, I think, would be be fairly horrible. Actually, um, I think you know the thought of, and it must be difficult. The thought of flying everywhere all the time and being told to like you know interviews constantly, and I I, I can't imagine that any of that. I must become like. So exhausting. You don't have your own life at all. So yeah, I think. Um, I mean, when you begin as a young guy these days, you get all these. Uh, on the on the one hand, you get all this information on the internet, which mm. which is great. I mean, how how glad would I have been? When like 30 years ago, I had a YouTube video yeah. explaining me how a compressor works. Yeah, like, yeah <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But on the other hand, there is so many information out there and also in, in all directions that you get really confused um, easily if there isn't somebody who says, ah, this is working for you and this isn't working for you because you get videos that are showing you all kinds of stuff and you are really lost when you're a young guy. Or for example, yeah. those videos who tell you all the time you have to do like only two minute songs now because the Spotify algorithm won't like you anymore when your song is is longer than three minutes or so, which to my point of view is absolute bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that is uh, the thing which is maybe harder for the younger generation than it was for us because uh, I back then I I didn't have to think about a Spotify algorithm or something like that. I just had the bands which I liked and I wanted to make music into a certain direction and I did that. And so, yeah. Hmm. There is an awful lot of being slave to the algorithm, feeling like I think the constant pressure of making content for TikTok or making, you know, YouTube or whatever, um, mm. is it must be quite wearing on people and on artists the amount of content they have to produce. Uh, I mean, having said that, you know... It, you have that potential, don't you? You have that potential of going viral on these things, of of, of reaching huge audiences, which, you know, uh, I mean, I remember it was like mainly playing in the back of pubs and clubs and trailing around, you know, in a transit van, lugging gear everywhere. And, you know, uh, often playing to very small audiences and, and uh, you know, being fr quite frustrated that, like, you had all these plans but you couldn't really get anyone to listen. And, you know, you know, even as independent artists now ourselves, you know, I, I, I mean, it's quite incredible to me that, you know, I've got four and a half thousand or whatever I've had monthly listeners or that I've mm -hmm. got like 60,000 streams on something is, is you know, to think that that those numbers are like, you know, in order to reach those sort of numbers before and to put your music out to that many people um, was just so impossible a lot of the time, unless you were signed to somebody major and you were on the TV, you know, it was, yeah, it was right. very hard. So yeah, pluses and minuses either way, I guess. Mm. And especially from all over the world. I mean, sometimes yeah. I get messages from people from Chile or from, I don't know, Argentina yeah. or so. And they say, hey, I love your song. And I, I really connected with it and so on. And that is really a miracle for me. It is a miracle, isn't it? Yeah, it shows that music is such a universal yeah. language, which is has the power to unite people from different countries. Oh, and that's so wonderful. Totally, totally. I mean, and, and that, that for me is huge motivator in it. I see music is 
potentially just such a positive thing. And, um, you know, and it does unite people from all over the world. And I think where, without getting too political, where our world is so torn apart and fractured and culturally, you know, like uh, sort of at odds with it, you know, each other, uh, different places, and and, and there's so much conflict. It's um, wonderful to sort of just have, you know, this thing of music that we can all share. And I mean, like, I, I love the different cultures feeding into it, and I love to know that someone is crazy to know that someone over some other part of the world I sometimes look down my Spotify figures and think who was that was that someone driving through a desert and you know listening to you know one of my songs I mean it's you know I mean (laughs) crazy I mean I would just never thought that was going to happen in my life so it's 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 yeah it's wonderful it's wonderful Oh, sometimes when I look at the Spotify for Artists stats and mm. I see the name of a town, which I really don't know, no. like in the Philippines or so, mm. I look it up on, on Wikipedia and, and look it up like, like, how does this town look like? Yeah. It's so amazing that there are people in parts of the world which I didn't even knew they existed. No. And somehow they connect to the music that you're making. But- That's really Amazing, yeah. It is really amazing, <laughs> it is, yeah. I mean, as long as they're not a bot, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. That's right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, before we come to the notorious five quick questions mm. with five short answers. Um, oh, I'm not good at short answers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One last question for you. What's the most important advice that you have for young fellas who are just starting their synth music project or their production career What is this one thing that you really want to tell them? I'd say it's not about the gear. Don't get hung up Mm. on gear, on plugins, on that. It is, I'm not saying don't invest in some decent, decent stuff, but like don't get hung up on that. It's very easy to get hung up on that and hung up on, oh, I don't know, equally sort of courses and this and that and the other. I think it's doing it is the biggest thing. Uh, I think all the resources are probably out there for free and available. Um, I think there are huge numbers of people who will help you and, uh, you know, um, and ask for help as well because, the, you know, yeah. other uh, other artists other artists want to help you and want to sort of, you know, give you advice. Um And I would say release a lot, make a lot of music and release it. And that doesn't mean it shouldn't be good music. I think, you know, release good stuff, but don't be too hard on yourself. Don't constantly be, you know, I mean, don't really, I I think it works both ways because I see sometimes people releasing stuff that really isn't up to a good standard. Mm -hmm. And and I think, you know, that's not good, but I think you've got to make sure it, you know, it is good enough But at the same time, don't just like, uh, yeah, think it's all about gear and I've got to get better and I can't release it. And, I can, you know, I think it's good to get stuff out there, get feedback, work on it and get more stuff out there because we are in an age that chews up these things very quickly and, you know, your track's gone and they're wanting another track and whatever. So in reality, you do need to be fairly prolific and um, constant and consistent and... uh, Yeah, build an online presence and seek out community was the other thing I've written down, which is seek out people mm-hmm. to, like, we've got this Synthway fam, like, uh, chat online, which is brilliant. Like, um, there are lots of other 
discords and chats around and just like something where y- you can chat and get together with other producers, other people in your niche of music and whatever um, to support you and support them and, and to grow because it makes making music uh, a more fun and enjoyable thing and uh, you you do need that support sometimes i think because it can be tough yeah great advice tim really nice and uh, i no can problem. yeah absolutely agree <laughs> oh, good.
So now you should get yourself a Yorkshire tea because now the notorious five quick <laughs> question with five short answers, right. uh, which are always bringing the sweat onto the face of <laughs> of my um, interview guests usually. Right. So right. first one. If you could keep only one synthesizer, regardless if it's VST or hardware, which one would it be and why? I would keep something like a Juno 106, something like a pretty oh. simple synth plug-in or, or the hardware version. Yeah, Juno 106, I reckon. Yeah. Okay, uh, and why? Why, well, why don't you say like, I would like to... Just yeah. really easy to use, easy to create new sounds on, like... It sounds lovely and warm. It's got a lovely filter on it. And, you know, you can make a lot of different music with something like that. But you could almost swap that for many other, like, you know, like Synthmaster 2 I was playing with today. Like, a, But an analog an analog synth, basically. But, like, I, I think the Juno is a bit of a classic, um, and yeah. I've always liked it. <laughs> I also like the way it looks. So there we go. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which band or musical project has impressed you the most in the last 12 months? Mm. This was really really difficult. Um See? I'm going <laughs> to answer not a sort of big band or something, but um uh, I I'm going to answer a fellow synthwave artist, um Synth mm. Principal, um who's oh, in our group. Yeah. I've absolutely loved what he's produced over the last year and I, and I think it's just like so dramatic like the he was making good music when I first met him in sort of online on 2022 21 22 whenever it was um but like how far he's come with his production and stuff and like you know how well he's been doing I and I just think he's been making some great music so and he's an absolutely top bloke so there we go yeah fantastic very yeah. nice answer and hello Dan from here yeah absolutely <laughs> hello Dan yeah and keep making great music yeah okay next question what would you like your fans to associate with you and your work I I would love it if fans associated my work with emotion really that they had an emotional response that it's it's about emotion it's about connectivity and emotion to me and that they connected in an emotional way with 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 what I do um uh, and it made them feel something you know um that's what I want yeah great and what would you like your fans to associate a little less with you and your work oh Mm. This was difficult. Probably me and my bald <laughs> head turning up on various, like, <laughs> you know, YouTube clips or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know. Probably me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last question. What do you think will be the most important change in the music scene in the next five years? I think there will be more. Actually, probably not good for synthwave musicians, is but more acoustic music or more music made obviously by musicians. I think country is like really coming up at the moment, really everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I th and folk has been uh, folks had a big revival or over the last while anyway. But I think there's probably a reason for that. I think that you know there's going to be this differentiation between AI-based music and, you know, yeah. and I think a lot of people are going to, there's going to be a slight rejection of the more synthesized 
um, I don't know, synthesized not the right word, but the more, um, you know, kind of manufactured music. I think people are, they once they've had a lot of it, they will just start to want something different. So I, I think there will be a bit more of the, I mean, I think people are loving country music because it's got storytelling, it's got songwriting, it's got, you know, uh, emotion. And um, it's, you know, probably a little bit of a, a different sound. Um, it's been there for years, but apparently the country music audience has just discovered Spotify and all these things, and and so it's flooding the market a bit. But, you know, don't know how long it will last, but I, I think music made by musicians kind of might well make a bit of a resurgence in that way. I could be wrong. Because clearly, on the other hand of this, AI is obviously going to be massive in, in music and in plugins mm. and in everything else. But I... I don't know, you know. I'm yeah, that, but it's really interesting, and I I would sort of agree. But on the other hand, I would also say I'm the devil's advocate here because yeah. one of the first um, AI music created uh, pieces that I heard was with the voice of Johnny Cash. Right, <laughs> right, indeed. So we can make country music with AI as well, can't we? Yeah, so, sure. Yeah, yeah of course. So a, <laughs> That's right. Which is very true. But yeah, I wonder how much we might want to sort of see musicians playing you know the it, it, i think it's that whole sort of thing i'm wondering where we go with ai in the sense of like if you end up with an internet that you can't trust anything that's on it you can't believe whether anything's true or not true whether you don't know mm. whether the news you're watching on tv is true or not whether you you know you get to a point where like there's so much sort of deep fakes and fake things and there's so much music that are made not by human beings and everything else i wonder either we are we're going to embrace that and somehow we're going to manipulate that like we we do just use it as a tool i suppose like like we do for maybe artwork or something at the moment like or are we going to sort of have a reaction against that and sort of go actually i don't don't want to be online i want to go round and see that person because then i know that they're real you know and i'll talk <laughs> to them so i wonder if we're going to have a reaction against all of this at some point i don't know i mean it won't stop me doing what i do but like you know at the end of the day i i wonder if we might start wanting to sort of see real people doing real things again i don't know yeah i mean it it stays exciting and uh yeah mm, yeah i'm not i'm <laughs> not by any means coming right yeah i'm not by any means someone who you know i mean it's like i love it's like i love technology um so you know and i i just see every of every one of these things is a new opportunity really as a new tool new something to play with but like um if someone hadn't invented the synthesizer it certainly wasn't the death of music it was like you know a fantastic um sort of thing to create more music with so i i, I tend to grab anything that comes our way and see it as you know a tool to create something that we hadn't yet envisaged so Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm definitely curious if AI will come up with a really new development in synthesizing mm. technology. Mm. You know, we had we didn't have a lot of really new developments for for decades. I no. would say there there was analog, there was subtractive, additive, FM. Yep. Um, face distortion and then I mean yeah, okay then there came uh, wavetable synthesis and, and granular synthesis yep. but this is all old stuff and I've, I'm really curious if AI will come up with something actually new there yeah I, I'm wondering that as well um, 
yeah, whether we'll be able to, you know, create new sounds that we can't yet envisage. I mean, that's the that's always right. the interesting thing, isn't it? Rather than creating yeah. sounds that we already, <laughs> I, mean, I often think that it's like, oh, you know, I can use this synthesizer to create an acoustic guitar sound, and I go like, oh, I could just pick up an acoustic guitar. But like, um, uh, <laughs> but I think what's really amazing is when you can make a sound that none of us even envisaged, like even imagined. You know, so I reckon AI may well be. Part of that. All right, Tim. Thank you so much for uh, have being on the show. It's my uh, pleasure. It was really a fantastic talk with you. So much fun to speak with you, and so many facets. We definitely should do this again in a year or so. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I've I really enjoyed this. And yeah, thank you for so so much for taking your time. You're you're so welcome. Thank you ever so much for having me. As always, at the very end, let me add a little self-advertising for my own project, UAP. In 2021, I released my first album on Spotify, which was called Almost Gone. Back then, the result was still suboptimal in sound quality, and so I always had the plan to remix and remaster some of the tracks, which were especially dear to me, to release them in a way better production. So here's one of the ballads from my first album. It's called What It Needs To Be. I don't want to tell too much about the lyrics, which are a bit cryptic, so that you can still have your own interpretation to them. I just want to say that there are times in life where you ask yourself if the place you're in is just right, although everything feels quite okay. But still, there's a flame like burning inside you that's kind of indicating how life could have also been very different. And it always nags on you. Maybe you know the feeling. So, okay, so far so good. Guess this hasn't made it any less cryptic, but anyway, here we go. What it needs to be from yours truly, UAP. And I would appreciate if you stream this like crazy on Spotify, Apple Music, and wherever you go for streaming. It's always there 